Now let us turn to our passage. It is John chapter 12. And in this passage, it is the turning point in Jesus' ministry, actually in his life. He has been saying, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. In this passage, he says, the hour has come. That should get our attention. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with the request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Then the crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have the light so that you may become sons of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless us as we look into this word, as I would endeavor to open it up that we would understand who Jesus is, what he came to do, and how momentous it is in all of history and in our very own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The hour has come. There are two Greek words for time that the Bible uses, plus a third word for hour. The two words for time are chronos, and kairos. Chronos has to do with chronological time. It's our ordinary sense of time, the length of time. John uses chronos in, in four different verses. I'll just cite one of them, John 5, 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. See, that's just natural time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? He uses it, it just an ordinary sense of time in three more you know, passages. But the word kairos 
has a different sense. It's this is the time. This is the moment. This is the changing point. That's why I chose the passage that I chose in, uh, for the, the prayer of confession that from Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, or as other translations, when time had fully come, or as Karen Green, a good friend of ours uh, who was with us this last summer, uh, wrote a song at exactly the right time, Jesus died. Jesus died for me at exactly the right time. It's that kind of pivotal time. And there are certain times like this in our lives. When I was uh, getting married, I was standing in the hallway outside the sanctuary. The door was closed. I could hear the, the general murmurings of the congregation gathered. And you know I was excited and nervous. Mike and I were talking about uh, this beforehand, he said, you're, you're almost queasy, but in a positive way. And I was thinking through the door, through the door, and, and it turned into song. I wrote a song that I'm not going to sing for you because I don't want to ruin the song. But it was, through the door, people waiting for me. Through the door, I will soon be married. This is the hour I've waited for. She is the girl that I adore. Here I go walking through the door to say, I do. And then the chorus, skipping the rest of the middle of the song, is this is the beginning of a new life for me. Just to have her with me is a new life for me. Mr. and Mrs., husband and wife, from now on it will be. This is the beginning for me. That's Kairos kind of time. And when you put it in a very specific, pointed, brief time, the Bible uses the word hour, hora, in the same way. This is the hour I've waited for. Everything in my life led up to that. I have before marriage and after marriage, and things were, were very different. It's momentous. That's the kind of time that our passage talks about. Jesus uh, uh, it takes the passage, uh, it takes the concept and refers to it in the Gospel of John with the word hour more than the word kairos for time. In all of history, when Jesus came, that was the kairos time, that was the changing point in history. Jesus in his own life was even more specific. Within his life, he had a time of growth and development as he grew up as a child in the wisdom, in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. He was 30 years old when he began his ministry. He had done ordinary things as fully God and fully man. He yet was subject to human limitations. His time had not yet come. And then when he began his earthly ministry, which was two and a half to three years, he would say in his ministry, my time has not yet come. And then John, the ESV translation brings out that the Greek word is for hour in John 2, chapter 4, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. The context is the wedding at Cana. And Jesus' own mother, on this Mother's Day, we get to acknowledge her, had come to Jesus and said, They're running out of wine. They're going to be so humiliated. We've been watching the, uh, the series, The Chosen, on TV. And many of you have discovered that. I, I recommend it to you. It's, it's Christian fantasy in the sense that it, it fleshes out the lives of uh, Jesus and his disciples 
in a way that I think honors the boundaries, the, the personalities, the teachings of Scripture very, very well, even though it's speculative about you know, the things that Peter and, and Nicodemus and others did. It's true to the characters as they're presented in Scripture. And they showed the wedding at Cana. And I loved the Jesus' mother coming to him, pleading. You could see the humiliation for the family. And Jesus' response to her was, my hour has not yet come. Now, he went on and did the miracle, but he did it in a way that was veiled. Everybody didn't know where it had come from. His disciples knew. His mother knew. But it wasn't, it wasn't time for him to burst on the public scene yet. So he told her, my hour has not yet come. There's something in the drama, reading through John, where you begin to realize, what's going to happen? This is momentous. This is waiting in the hallway outside the sanctuary for your wedding. That's not the big time, but the anticipation is all there. In John chapter 7, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Here John uses the Greek word kairos that's a little bit broader perhaps than hours, a shorter kind of time, because Jesus is talking to his brothers and they're saying, go on down. If you want to be known, if you want to be famous, you got to go where the people are. He did not want to go on their agenda. And he said, for you, the time's always right. They weren't getting God's purpose and what he sent Jesus for. It wasn't to be a famous political leader. He did go on secretly to the feast later. And uh, when he uh, got to the feast, they were going to arrest him because of his teaching. And they recognized in his teaching his claim to be God the Son. He said, my father, not our father, in the distinct relationship, my father. And they knew what he was saying. They had seen him do miracles, to do miracles on the Sabbath. He said, my father's always at work. As, as my father's always at work, I am always at work. He was Lord of the Sabbath. They knew that was his claim. And so they began to try to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. In John chapter 8, when the climax, we've gone through these passages, the conflict between him and the Pharisees, when he, he finally said, before Abraham was, I am. The strongest claim to deity that could possibly be to take the very name of God himself in front of those who were challenging him. They tried to seize him there and kill him. But in John chapter 8, uh, he uh, just walked on through because his time had not yet come. In John chapter 12, we find the hour has come. That should get our attention. We've been waiting for this. Now he's going to reveal what he came to do. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified in verse 23. So let's begin this passage, going through this passage at that point. The occasion is that there were Greeks who showed up to go to worship at the feast. Now these Greeks were probably not Greek-speaking Jews. They are likely uh, Greeks who were called God-fearers. They weren't circumcised, but they acknowledged the God of Israel as the true and living God, and they came to participate in the feasts. So when they come, they are a foretaste of what Jesus came to do to be Savior, not just of Israel, but of all the world. Earlier he had said, I have sheep that are not of this pen. I must call them, bring them in also, that there would be one flock and one shepherd. 
Jesus knows he came to be the Savior, not just for Israel, but for all the world. It doesn't mean every person, but it means no matter who you are, where you're from, what's your nationality, he's the Savior who paid the penalty of sin, and the call of the gospel is for you. It's not universalism, but it is universal, if you catch the distinction. Here the Greeks come, and they come with the request, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Now, why didn't he go straight to Jesus? He can kind of just see the, the natural sense of history here. That He went to tell Andrew. Andrew, who brought his brother Simon uh, Peter to Jesus, is, you know, is a good one for taking people to, to Jesus. And Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. And Jesus replied, not specific to bring them here, I'll meet with them. He recognized the uh, Greeks, which stands for all the Gentiles, it's the Jews and the Greeks, it's the Jews and everybody else. He said, he recognized this as the trigger for him to be the Savior. And he said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if we just stopped there, we might read into it uh, what we would like to think of earthly fame and, and, and fortune and popularity. Now, even though many of the Jewish leaders have been rejecting Jesus, news of Jesus is breaking beyond the bounds of Israel, and the whole world will see him as a celebrity, make him famous, right? That's not what he came to do. What does it mean when it says that the Son of Man will be glorified? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He goes straight, not to the heights, but to the depths. He says, I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Don't you know that Philip and Andrew looked at each other and said, Say what? What's he talking about? Jesus knew that he was coming to his hour, and that hour for him meant to be our Redeemer, he needed to go to the cross. He's beginning to talk about his death. And his death is in the context of him being glorified. Now it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. So I'm going to go to the cross and do what I came to do. That I, by my death, will bring life to all the world who would put their hope and trust in me. If the grain of wheat dies, it produces many seeds. And then he applies it to us as he calls us to be his disciples. He has said in other places in the Gospels, if anyone would be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He says here, the man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This Christian paradox is not applied to us from a distance. Jesus, our Savior, goes before us. This is exactly what he did. He knew he came to go all the way down to the cross. Usually in theological, formal theological terms, we call that the humiliation of Christ. Humiliation does not mean the embarrassment of Christ. It means the lowest point, going down. That's what the humiliation of Christ is. He was not embarrassed by this. He gave himself for this. Jesus sees his humiliation. 
is going down to the cross as the reason he came, and that's why he is glorified, and it brings glory to the Father that he would be the Savior of the world. So he goes before us, and then he calls his followers to realize that's the way to life. You could respond and say, wait a minute, I heard him say earlier, he came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. How can we have life when he says, he who loves this life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life? I thought he's going to give me abundant life. Well, first we need to understand how the Hebrew mind took these terms love and hate. Jesus said at one point, on this Mother's Day, it's a great time to mention this passage, if anyone would be my disciple, he must hate his father and mother. Children, don't take that out of context. The Bible calls you to love your parents, to honor your parents. It's just in compared to that human love, that natural love, the love that, that ought to be, that ought to be easy, that if sin doesn't break it up and mess it up, it's natural. He said, in comparison to that, your love for Christ is ultimate. And the contrast makes it a comparison of like love and hate. You should love your Savior so much more. You are his. Your allegiance is to him. Then in comparison, your love for your, for your parents pales in comparison. That's the love-hate dynamic. So often the Bible takes something that's a positive. We love this life and this world. We're grateful to God for every blessing that declares his glory in this life. We celebrate that. They are foretastes of heaven. But if our allegiance is to those things, if our worship is for those things, we've lost it. Our allegiance needs to be to the one who gives life not, for this life, not only for this life, but through death for the life to come. When our allegiance is there, the comparison is, is so fundamental. It's like I, I, I reject living for, for my life here to live for my God and my Savior. He who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. How would you have responded if you had known everything on this Sunday or Monday uh, before Jesus goes to the cross on Friday? And he says, follow me. I'm going to the cross. You knew that he was going to give his life. And he says, follow me. Just stay with me. Be with me where I am. Peter couldn't even handle that. He disowned Christ. Because to follow Christ is to die to self. It's to take up our cross and follow him. But Jesus is saying, here's the secret. When you do that, you break the power that would defeat you. As I break the power of sin and I break the power of death, you will also break it in me and go through the passage of, of death to the glory of the life to come. Follow me. Follow me through the trench to be raised up to the glory. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now, that doesn't mean that we're just immune to the sufferings of this world. We see in Jesus' humanity something in the next verses when he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And the first step of his glorification is his death on the cross. He responds in a way that we understand. He says, now my heart is troubled. 
And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. You identify with him there. We can. He, in his human nature, is not exempt from the suffering. We know from the other Gospels, his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane was a, a prayer of agony. He sweat as though great drops of blood were falling to the ground. He was asking his disciples to pray with him. He began with, Father, take this cup from me. If there's any other way for these people to be saved, he began there, but he prayed it through all the way to simply glorify thy name. And so the way he expresses it in John is, shall I pray? Take this away from me? That's the beginning of his prayer, but it's not where he lands. We can come to God with those anxieties, those worries, those frets, those pleads. Take this from me. But where we should land is, but you know best. Glorify your name. Your will, not mine, be done. That's the prayer of faith. And Jesus leads us by example in this. He says, no, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then in the drama of, of all of this gospel, when Jesus had been saying, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. Now my hour has come. Shall I pray that God would, would deliver me from this? No. This is the reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. At this point in the drama, God responds. There are three places that God speaks. One is at the baptism of Jesus. Another is at the transfiguration of Jesus. And in this place, when Jesus is about to go to the cross, he says, from a voice, a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Sometimes I do wish God would speak to us in that way. We'd hear the rumblings. But we have to remember doubting Thomas, who didn't see Jesus after he was raised from the dead. and He wouldn't believe until he saw it. Jesus said to him when he appeared to Thomas, and Thomas fell down at his feet and worshiped, he said, you believe because you have seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. We have the testimony of all of Scripture. If we had been there and it God had done this for us one time, we might have begun to think, was well, that wacky? Is that, was I mistaken? Am I, am I hallucinating about this thunder if God just did it for us? Instead, we have all the testimony of Scripture that this happened. And God validated, he verified that what Jesus was claiming, he, Jesus was not a cult leader. He was the true son of God and God spoke. Listen to that. Hear his voice speaking to you from his word right now. When, when God says about Jesus, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. His disciples evidently, just like at the baptism, understood. And Jesus explained to them, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. What does that mean? Jesus didn't need affirmation that God was his father. He knew that. That was his claim for which he was being crucified. God did this for the benefit of his disciples so that they would know what Jesus was claiming was the very word of God that sent him for this purpose, that God would be glorified in what Jesus was about to do. Now is the time for judgment on this world. 
Now the prince of this world will be driven out. What does that mean? Verse 31. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Jesus had said earlier, I have not come to judge. I have come to save. So what does it mean? Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Well, what happens on the cross? The very judgment of God that is stored up, the wrath of God that is stored up for our sin, all the saints of the Old Testament who trusted in God for forgiveness, all in the new, through our generation until Christ comes again, all of the the punishment due for, for our sin was rolled up and poured out on Jesus. The judgment of God was poured out on the cross. We just had a mediator, a substitute, one who would stand in our place and take the punishment for our sin on himself, that we would be freed so that when we stand before the judgment seat, our sins are already judged. They're already paid for. They're already gone. They are forgiven in Christ. Now is the time for judgment on this world. That's the connection with now the prince of this world will be driven out. The prince of this world is Satan himself, our adversary, the devil, the accuser who stands before God saying, you're holy, they're sinful, you have to punish them. You can't let them off. If you do, that corrupts your character. He had a claim, and he thought his claim was good. He thought he could destroy us by calling on the holiness of God to judge their sin as as he knew the wrath of God on his own sin. And he didn't see it. He thought when the Messiah came that the Messiah came to deliver, but he had to stop the Messiah. And he did all that he could to rile up the people against Jesus. And he was successful. And he got the Pharisees to stir up the crowd to, to command crucifixion. He got Judas to betray him. He got Pilate to wash his hands of him. He got Herod to mock him. He got those soldiers to nail him to the cross and to mock him and beat him and scourge him. He got the crowd and the the, uh, thieves on either side mocking him at first. We know that one turned to Christ. We hope, even though the scriptures don't tell us, maybe the other one came to his senses before the end. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But Satan was busy. And he thought he was stopping the Messiah. But Jesus was saying, this is what I came to do, that the prince of this world will be driven out. And when Jesus finished his work on the cross and he declared, it is finished, it is accomplished. Payment for sin had been made by the infinite son of God who could swallow it whole and pay it in full. Satan realized his accusation no longer held water. He was vanquished. He could say, you're a holy God, you must punish sin. I have punished sin in my son who stands in their place. And I give them my love and my grace and my forgiveness. And Satan has no standing before God to accuse those who belong to Christ, to accuse you and accuse me. He's vanquished. This is what the hour was for. But I... When I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Now, if it weren't explained, we might wonder, lifted up meaning on the cross or lifted up in his 
uh, resurrection and his ascension. Jesus goes on to explain it. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. He was lifted up on the cross. And at that cross, it's interesting how there were Jews, there were his disciples, some of his disciples at the foot of the cross, his own mother. There's also a Roman centurion who ended up saying, surely this is the Son of God. He did this before all the world in, in the, that present circumstance. And this gospel is for all the world, that he would draw all from every nation, tribe, and language to himself. That's what he went to the cross for. There's a paradox, and he's lifted up on the cross and glorified in that. How do we get our hands on, a handle on that? I think that childbirth is probably the best illustration. Again, it's a moment. It's, it's that the hour has come. It's time. I remember when I wrote two songs for my two sons at their wedding day. I wrote one for my daughter at her birth. And the one for my daughter kind of brings out this sense of, of time. And it started at 11.30 Wednesday morning. Ooh, Margaret Ann. But the doctor said it'd be a while before she was born then. Her time had not yet come. Ooh, Margaret Ann. The doctor said, he said that we should carry on normally. It possibly could last for days. So on our way home, we stopped for something to eat. But the pain never went away. And at one the next morning, I finally called the doctor. Ooh, Margaret Ann. Contractions were five minutes apart when I clocked her. Her time had come. This was the hour. Ooh, Margaret Ann. I grabbed the car keys, diaper bag, Davison and Mary, and the suitcase that we'd packed that day, dropped Davison off at French while Mary said to hurry, and got gas on the way. And I won't go into the rest of it except to say that I came up with this wonderful rhyme that you've never heard before. So Mary had to do it without the epidural. Ooh, Margaret Ann. And at 5.21 a.m., we had a baby girl. Ooh, Margaret Ann. The time had come. This was the hour for my wife to be glorified in bringing life into this world. But it was much like going to the cross. Can you see that? She went down before she came up. In fact, John in his gospel brings out this as an illustration in chapter 16, verses 21 and 22, John writes, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. And this is Jesus teaching. He's, he's recording what Jesus taught. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus goes to the cross to do the labor for us, that we might be born again in him. Wow. So how do you respond? The crowd spoke up. We've heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? They kept thinking when the Messiah comes, he's going to establish an eternal good earth. And he, they couldn't understand how the Messiah came to die. That sounds like the end of the kingdom. 
But the paradox is this. Jesus going to the cross didn't uh, get beaten. It wasn't the end of his kingdom. It's how he accomplished his kingdom in winning for himself and for his father, us, from our sin. That's how he established his kingdom. And there's a lesson in that. We often look at the circumstances of this life and the hard things as defeats instead of as times and opportunities and places where in darkness we can show the light of Christ, the difference that it makes to know him and to have that hope that cannot be taken away. When there's rejection, we have the opportunity to show the kind of love that God has shown for us. When we were born rejecting him, we have that opportunity. It's when the world says, how can this be that you would die to self and have abundant life? We say, it's in dying to self to live for Christ. He's the one that gives abundant life that can't be taken away by life or by death. It's the same paradox for Jesus going to the cross. That's how he accomplished his kingdom. When we die to self, we find life in him. Then Jesus said to them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer, a short time, that's chronos kind of time. While you have the light, before darkness over, walk while you have the light, before darkness overtakes you. Jesus is really saying, for a few more days, I will be with you. He is the light of the world. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he's going. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become sons of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. While you have life, you have enough light to respond to Jesus Christ. Don't want to throw my wife under the bus here, but there was a moment, an hour, a time for me that was far more important, far greater than that hour that I was waiting for when we would get married. And that was the hour that I gave my life to Jesus Christ. That was a time when I, I went from a, a childhood profession of faith that I believe was sincere, but I started pulling away. It was when I was in, in ninth grade that I realized if I, a real Christian wouldn't feel this way, wouldn't be wrestling against God. I'm not sure whether that eighth grade testimony probably was genuine, but I needed to grow up in it and give my life to Christ. And that was momentous. And that makes the difference between heaven and hell. Makes the difference of, of life beyond death. Far more important than marriage itself. That was the hour for me to discover the eternal life that could be ours in Christ, where God opened the doors of heaven for me. Has your hour come? Is this your moment? Have you come to the point of responding to say, I recognize who you are, Jesus, and what you have done as Savior of sinners. And I do want to receive you. If, if, if you are having that stirring in your heart, that is the work of the Holy Spirit in you to draw you to himself. Do you know him? Do you know that? Or is this your moment? If it is, it's the most important hour of your life. The hour has come for you to receive Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. If that happened many years ago for you, remember that hour, because after that hour in your life, everything's different. You have a Savior who calls you to follow him.
and he leads you through death to heaven and glory to come. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, be at work in us in such a way that we would be born again. Jesus did the labor for us. We pray that your Spirit would give us the heart to respond and receive and follow our Savior. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would recognize that what Jesus did to be glorified was he became obedient even to death on the cross. And through that death, he accomplished what you sent him to do, that all the world would have the doors of heaven opened for those who would come to put their hope and trust in Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.